Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast, where you'll find fresh messages uploaded weekly. Pathway Church is a Bible-based church located in Peterborough, Ontario, and we're on a mission to reach people far from God and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. We hope that what you hear today will help you to take one step closer to Jesus. Thanks so much for joining us, and if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe. Welcome, everybody. Uh, Great to have you uh, with us again. Uh, If you've been around for the past number of weeks, then you'll know that we are in the midst of a message series uh, in the New Testament letter of 1 Thessalonians. And so this is actually week seven. So if you're a guest or you haven't been with us in the previous weeks, I want you to know that you can go to our website, you can go to Apple or or, uh, any podcasting site, and you can access the messages and kind of catch up with us should you want to do so. Uh, We've been walking through this letter, uh, which was written by Paul the Apostle, Silas, his companion in ministry, and Timothy, their understudy apprentice. And these three men had visited the port city of Thessalonica in modern-day Greece today, and they had told them about this Jewish Messiah named Jesus who had come and sacrificed his life and risen from the dead, and they, they shared the message of faith with these people living in this region. And many of them believed, and a church was formed in this particular town. And, and later, Paul would write with his companions some letters to encourage them as they continue to grow in their faith. They were new Christians. And maybe we have some folks in here who are new Christians or are soon to be new Christians. And, and, and so as we've been going through uh, these past six weeks, we've really been talking a lot about how faith is a process, how we don't, we're not born into the kingdom of God as fully developed, mature, spiritual adults. We're actually born in infancy and as babies, and we, we grow in love, and we grow in patience, and we grow in our knowledge of God, and we grow in our gifts, and all of that uh, is true. And so we've kind of been doing that for the last six weeks and talking about the implications of how we live the Christian life. But we've titled this series, Waiting Well. And you may be thinking, after six weeks, we really haven't talked about waiting. So why is this series called Waiting Well? And the reason why is because today, we're gonna, Paul is just going to kind of change gears. And what's fascinating about preaching through a letter like this, through a book of the Bible, is that you just never know what the author is going to talk about. And so, you know, one week you're talking about sex, that was a couple weeks ago, and then we were talking last week about how we love and serve other people, and we had our mission Sunday. And then in the very next breath, Paul is going to turn his attention to the future and this event that is well known within the church called the rapture. All right? Some of you have heard of the rapture. So it's like out of nowhere. It's like, love your neighbor. Jesus is coming. Okay? And it's just like this radical. And so, so today we're going, to, we're going to kind of steer in that direction. But uh, I wanted to ask this question. What exactly are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? Anybody, you can throw out an answer if you think you know. What, are, what is it that Christians are waiting for while we're living in this life? Jesus' return, the end, that's good. I heard somebody in the first service said heaven, all good things. Uh, when I was in Sunday school, they used to tell us, you know, if you don't know the answer to a question in church, the answer is usually Jesus, okay? And in this case, and in this case it actually is, okay? We are waiting, Christians who are alive on the earth today are waiting for Jesus. Now, if you're new to faith, you're going, wait a minute, I thought he already came. Yes, he did. Hey, 2,000 years ago, uh, you've heard the Christmas story, Mary and Joseph, and this baby is born, humble beginnings, and he becomes a Jewish uh, rabbi. He teaches, he has these followers, and then he's crucified by the Roman authorities, put to death, rises again. There's this great story there, and you're like, I thought that was it. I thought Christianity was about remembering and looking back to this sacrifice that was made, but that's only half the story. You see, in Jesus' day, the Jews 
would have studied the Bible, but not quite the Bible as we know it, because they would have had only the first two-thirds of what we call the Bible. It's called the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is also called the Jewish or the Hebrew Scriptures, because it contains in it the, the story of creation, the lineage of Abraham and all his descendants all the way down to the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, their kings and their history, but also included in that are prophetic writings from Jewish prophets. And what you'll notice, if you read it all, which is really fun, by the way, and if you go back and you read the Old Testament, you're going to find that there are many prophecies. And these are people inspired by God saying, this is going to happen in the future. And they describe a Messiah and a Savior for the Jewish people that will, they describe them in two very different ways, which is really strange. One of the ways that Jesus is described in the Old Testament is as a suffering servant. Talks about him being like a lamb being led before the slaughter. That he's going to give his life a ransom for all the people. He's going to save the people by giving his life in exchange. A sacrificial lamb. So there's like, okay, that's, there's that Messiah. And then there are all of these passages in the Old Testament talking about a future king. And this is a glorious Messiah who's going to come with a sword and a scepter. And is going to rule the nations, bring peace to the world, end all of the violence and end sin and pain and tears, no more. And it's like this glorious picture of eternity and he's going to rule and reign. And it's like there's, those are two very different images of the coming Messiah. Would you not agree? Which is why when Jesus appeared on the scene, the Jews living in his day knew the Old Testament scriptures and they knew the prophecies and they looked at Jesus and were like, that can't be him. There's nothing kingly about him. You know, if he was really the Messiah, he would march into Jerusalem with a whole bunch of Jews and he would take over and he would destroy the power of Rome and he would set up an eternal lasting kingdom and Jerusalem would be at the center of this world economic system ruled by a just Messiah, Jesus. And so what happened was people looked at at Jesus and, and they thought he can't be the Messiah because he doesn't fulfill all these prophecies. What they did not understand that we get a glimpse into is this. The reason why we have these two very distinct versions of a Messiah in the Old Testament is because Jesus was going to come two times. The first time Jesus comes into the world, he comes as the suffering servant. He comes and he lays his life down and he pays the penalty of our sin. He dies in our place. But then he's coming again. And he's going to come again, and when the next time he comes, he's going to rule and reign. And you go, but this world is so broken, and people get sick, and they die, and why does God allow this to happen in the earth? It won't happen forever. He's coming back. He's going to fix those things. So you have these two revelations of Jesus. They didn't know then. We have this extra insight because we have 2,000 years of history. And we look back, and we see how Jesus fulfills all of these prophecies of the suffering servant. But we know that all the prophecies about his kingship and his rulership are yet to come. And of course, the New Testament authors encourage and promote this idea and talk about it. And so we're going to see that today. But before we jump into our text, I want to share with you um, an analogy, an image that I hope will be helpful as we we look at what Paul's going to say about the second coming of Jesus, specifically this this event that the, the church calls the rapture. And what I want to explain to you is the Jewish or the Hebrew marriage tradition, okay? Some of this comes from Jewish antiquity. You can look online and research, you know, historical Jewish marriages. But a lot of it comes from Jesus' own stories because one of the the ways that Jesus liked to talk about what's to come in the future was using an analogy of a bride and a groom. And some of you may have heard, if you've been around church, that the, the church 
The people who worship and love Jesus are his bride and he's like a groom. And when Paul talks to the church in Ephesians 5, I think it is, he talks about how husbands and wives ought to treat each other and all that. He actually says, this is for you, husbands and wives, but it's actually about Jesus and his church. He's the groom. We're the bride. And, and when we understand the ancient traditions around marriage, it helps us to understand this whole scheme and timeline of history as it is going to unfold. The first uh, part of an ancient Jewish marriage was the betrothal. How many have heard of betrothal? Throw up your hand. Okay, most of you have. And the reason why you've heard of betrothal, either you're Jewish and they still practice this in some way, or you've read the Christmas story. And it's <laughs> more likely it's that. Uh, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. So what is this betrothal process? Let me explain. In those days, marriages were often arranged. Okay, and when two people were married, it wasn't just, I love you, you love me, let's get married. It was actually the joining of two families. And even today in our modern marriages, uh, that still exists because this isn't a marriage sermon, but let me just tell you, when you marry someone, you marry their family, like it or not. Even if, they're, even if your spouse's parents are dead, they're living somehow through them. You just, it's amazing, okay? You marry someone's history. You marry who they are, and they're very much uh, built up by their past. And so when these two families would join, there was a, a process called betrothal, and it was often the father of the groom or the groom himself would go, not to the girl, hey, will you marry me? Not that. But the actual, the the guy or his dad who wanted to marry the young lady would actually go to the bride's or the young lady's father. Okay? This is ancient tradition. And they would go to the father and make a proposal like, we want to join my son or I would like to marry your daughter, however this would work out. And here's what would happen. An, An agreement would be made and the young man would offer usually a large sum of money to purchase her. And some of you are thinking, oh my goodness, to purchase her. We have come so far, but can I tell you, if you study this, it's really fascinating. When you study the ancient literature around this, this is really fun, you'll discover that often what happened was the father of the bride would receive this large sum of money and like, hey, gentlemen, if you didn't show up with a large sum of money, you are not taking my girl. Okay, that's good, but... But it wasn't because he wanted the money. In fact, historically speaking, if that father kept that money, spent it on himself, he was shamed in the community. The father would set that money aside almost like an insurance policy. Because if this young man leaves with your daughter, okay, and, and, and the way it would work is the young man would take the daughter and take her back to his land, his father's house, and she'd gone. And, 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 if, and if that man divorces her, And she's left with kids, and and she would move back with her family, and there would be this money to care for her and her children. Or sometimes in antiquity, they would actually, the father would give this large sum of money that was given by the groom, he'd give it to the daughter so she would have her own means within the marriage. This is fascinating stuff. So it's not all just like this purchase agreement. But the point I wanted to make was a large sum of money was often paid in order to enact this agreement. And once that deal was done, it was done. Like It was as if this young man and this young woman were already married. They were legally bound for life. That was it. It was like a little different than our engagement. Okay, It was more permanent. It was more serious. So there's this betrothal process. But what happens next is not young man takes young woman and leaves with her. There was actually a period of preparation and a period of waiting that would take place. Often 12 months or more. And really, this isn't that unusual. Like Think about our own customs, right? Guy proposes to girl, gives her a very expensive ring. 
At least you hope it's expensive. And so he gives her this very expensive ring. And then they don't usually get married the same day unless you're in Vegas. They, what do they do? They wait and they prepare. And he prepares and she prepares and they prepare a celebration and their family and all of that stuff. So there's this period of waiting and preparation, but there's two things that would happen in, according to the Jewish custom. Number one, the young man would go back to his father's lands and would build a, an apartment, a room onto his father's house, or maybe build a house for him and his wife on his father's land. Now, there's a reason why they would do that. There's a reason why they weren't just like getting married and moving to Vancouver, they would build something on his father's land, and there's something here that we, we don't think about. It's this. When the nation of Israel was given the land, God promised to give them their land forever. That's why after over a thousand years, the nation of Israel was restored. It's part of God keeping his promise, okay? But here's what happened. When they came into the nation of Israel, the land of Israel was divided up into 12 tribes. And you can find a map online of all, the, it's like provinces. And each province was owned by that particular tribe of people. And what would happen is, if you were born in the tribe of Judah, then your father, your grandfather, your great-great-grandfather, and on and on, had always lived in that land, and it was constantly divided up by all the uh, kids within the family. It was your land. And here's something cool. According to Israel's law, that land was theirs forever. Here's what I mean. If I was from Judah, and I had my parcel of land, and I lived there with my father, and I got into debt... I could literally sell my land or even sell myself as a slave to someone else to pay off my debts. But every 50 years, there was something called the Day of Jubilee. And on the Day of Jubilee, trumpets were blasted throughout the nation. And they would ring out through the whole nation. And on that day, every 50 years, every person who was indebted as someone's slave, free. Everyone who had sold their property to pay off debt or sold their property, got into a mess, made some mistakes, they got their land back. So that the land that was apportioned to each tribe would always be theirs. Okay? And so this is, this is what would happen. And so that's why if you were building a house for your, for your bride, you build it on your father's land. Because it'll always be your land, no matter what. So this is, okay, I'm, I'm shaping all these ideas. I want you to, want you to track with me. So, so while he's over here with the hammer building a place for them to live once they're married, okay, he's doing that. Imagine this, he's furnishing the place for her. <laughs> I think that's funny because I'm just thinking of the guy's got flannel everywhere, you know, a deer leg lamp in the corner. It's just all masculine. And you know they're going to get married. She's going to be like, this won't do. But she's on her end. She's waiting for him. So the bride-to-be had no idea when her groom was going to show up. Every day, she would wake up preparing herself to look her best. She would probably be, in those days, weaving rugs and clothing, making clothing and preparing so that she would have all the things she needed to fix and refurnish the apartment once she gets there. You know? So she's got her, literally, like a hope chest. Her bags are packed. And she might go to bed at night, like lay down at night, you know, and hear the, the, the sounds of the night. And she's laying in bed going, maybe he'll come tonight. Maybe at two in the morning, he'll arrive. Like they didn't know. Wake up in the morning, oh, maybe today. And so she's waiting and she's preparing herself and she's saving and preserving herself for her husband-to-be. And she doesn't know when he's going to come. And then what would happen was the groom's father would appoint a day, would be like, hmm, the place is good enough, go get her. 
And he would enact it, and so then the groom would go, and he would travel to where she is, and he might go with his groomsmen, his entourage, his friends are going with him, and they're traveling to where she is, maybe in another province, and as they approach her place where she lives, they would start to yell and shout, the groom is coming, the groom is coming, and then the noise and all that would begin to happen, and what would the bride do? She would grab her things, her friends and entourage, and they would go out of the house, and they would go out to meet, and they would meet in, in between. It's a beautiful picture. And once they would meet, the groom would take his bride, often veiled, maybe he had never even seen her before, and he would take her, and they would go back to his father's house, where the marriage would be consummated, they'd have sex, and then there would be this huge party, which is much like we do with our weddings. The family and friends would be there, there'd be wine aplenty, food and feasting, sometimes for days, and there would be this huge celebration of the union of these two people and these two families. Okay, so I wanted to tell you that because... Uh, when we talk about Jesus' two comings, they mirror this image. And it's why when Jesus talks about the church, he talks about the church being his bride and him being the groom. And the first time that Jesus came to the earth, what did he do? He came and he entered into agreement with our Heavenly Father and his Father. And he paid the ultimate price to free us from sin and death by giving his life on the cross to set us free. And then, and then... He goes away to be in heaven. Here's how Jesus puts it in John chapter 14. Jesus is about to go to the cross about a week after this conversation we're going to read. And Jesus um, says to his disciples, hey guys, I'm about to die. No, Jesus, that can't happen. You need to become king to truly be the Messiah. You you, you have to take care of the Romans. He says, no, I'm actually going to die and then I'm going to go away. And the disciples were freaked out. This is not the plan. We've read the Old Testament scriptures. We know what you're supposed to do. And he's like, not yet. And so here's what Jesus says to encourage them in John 14, 2-3. And this will make more sense now that I've explained the marriage traditions. Jesus says, in my Father's house, where my Father lives in heaven, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? See the imagery? Jesus is like, I'm going to go away, and I'm going to prepare a place for you to come and live with me. He continues, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will, let's say these words together, come again. I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus says, here's the deal. I've come. I'm about to lay down my life and pay the price to purchase you. And then I'm going to go away and I'm going to prepare over here. And here's what you and I are going to do. We're going to sanctify ourselves. We're going to prepare ourselves to meet him. We're going to prepare ourselves to live with him forever. And while we're on this earth, we're in this preparation and waiting process for him to return and fulfill all that he has promised. Okay? Do you see it? That's what he says he's going to do. So, now we're going to, we're going to move into our text in 1 Thessalonians. But what I want you to understand about this is that this particular text, Paul is answering a question that the Christians living in that city had asked him. We don't know what the question is, but here's, here's what I believe it is. They have said to Paul, we know Jesus is coming back for us. We know we're going we're gonna to go and be with him in heaven forever. But we've been waiting for like 20 years. Like since Jesus went to heaven, this might be 20, 25 years. He still isn't here. What do we do? And then what happens is their family members and friends and church members start dying. And they're thinking to themselves, my spouse just died and we had a funeral. 
Now Jesus is going to come back and they're already dead. Uh, my, my wife had a child and it died in infancy. What about my child? My parents that have loved me and taught me the faith, they, they've died and gone. Like, now what? What happens to those Christians who have died while waiting? That's a good question for us to answer because a lot of Christians have died while waiting <laughs> 2,000 years later. And Paul is going to answer the question in such a brilliant way and, and we're going to tie all these themes together as we go. So let's pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 4. Here's what Paul says. We do not want you to be uninformed brothers. We can insert sisters. We do not want you to be uninformed. What we're going to talk about today may seem fantastical, may seem crazy, but Paul says you need to know this. This is important. If you, if you consider yourself to be a Christian, you need to know this stuff. We do not want you to be uninformed about those who are, what's that say? Asleep. Now, this is an interesting choice of words because he's actually talking about Christians who have died. And he uses the word asleep because fundamentally there is a belief for those who are Christians that death is not the end. And, and our entire faith is predicated on a couple of very foundational beliefs. The first is this, that there is an eternal God, one God who created all things, who gives the law and who judges all things. And so he is over it all. Now, if you don't believe that, everything else we're talking about is kind of like whatever. But that's a fundamental belief to the Christian faith. There is one God who is lawgiver and judge. Okay? This is a big idea. And if you go to school, university today, they're going to teach you that the world came into existence through all these natural processes over millions and then billions of years. And that's fine if you believe that. But the, the thing is, is that the real miracle is the millions and billions of years of how all of this somehow miraculously happens over time. So science says time did it. Christians say God did it. That's the only difference. We still study all the same stuff. We don't have to disagree, but that's the difference. And so here's the thing. Paul says in one of his letters, he says, look, if there's no God, if this is all just natural processes and we're just here, then he says, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, Paul says there's no reason to do anything good. Why would you love other people when you don't have to? Why would you give? Why would you pursue equality for all people if their lives don't matter and we all just die and disappear anyway? Like Paul had it. He understood like if that's what you believe, your foundation for the way that you live is gone. And so Christians live in light of the fact that there's a God who tells us how to live and then who will hold us accountable to live that way. Secondly, this is the second underlying belief, that all mankind, every person of every ethnicity, gender, race, made in the image and likeness of God. That, and what we mean by that is that if God is eternal and lives forever, guess what you and I? We live forever. That we're eternal. That when we die, when our body's put in a box, put in a furnace, dumped into the ocean, however it goes, that that's not the end. You don't cease to exist. That you were created to be eternal and to be in a relationship with God eternally. Again, if you don't believe that, then everything else we talk about is, is kind of nonsense. But if you do fundamentally embrace that, then what Paul is going to say next is super helpful. Okay, check it out. He says, about those who are asleep. He's talking about these Christians who have died. He says in uh, verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed uh, that you may not, he says, grieve as others who do not have hope. Now, when a Christian person loses a loved one, disease, death, tragedy, accident, all of that, we grieve. We should grieve. It's right to grieve the loss of those we love. 
but we don't grieve the way the world does because for someone outside of the faith, when the other person dies, it's like they're gone. We don't believe that. When they die, we lose them. They're not with us, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope because we know we will see them again. One day, I will sit down with my grandmother and hear her stories, all the ones I missed growing up. One day, my wife and I will see our child that we lost, and all of us have lost people, and those that we love, and there's this moment coming when we're reunited with them. It's a really hopeful thing, and it's, it's an amazing thing that Paul's talking about. So he says, as Christians, we're not like, oh, we lost it, and it's gone. No, not gone. We don't grieve as those who have no hope. He continues in verse 14, and he says this, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So the whole Christian faith is premised on this idea that Jesus died, he was placed in a tomb for three days, and then what did he do? He rose again. He's the only person to overcome death. And since he did it, he can do it for us. Since he broke the curse of sin and death and is able to have eternal life, then he offers it to us. And so there is a hope that one day, whether we die or whether he returns, that we will have new life and be with him forever. He continues, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So what's, what's Paul saying? He's saying, When Jesus returns the second time, those Christians, those who love him, those who have died on this earth, are coming back with him. So when you die, your your spirit, the essence of who you are, goes to be with him. The thing is, is God is not satisfied with us just being spiritual people floating around in eternity, okay? Can I just tell you, if some of you are like, well, I don't want to be existing forever, sitting in the clouds with a harp, plink, 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 like, just... (laughs) Doing nothing for the rest of my life? No. Actually, what the Scripture teaches, and this might be a newsflash for some of you, the Scripture teaches that we will exist in physical bodies, but they'll be glorified and new, and they won't die. So if you love walking on the beach, you'll be able to do that in eternity. You love climbing mountains and hiking. You like doing art and playing music. Like, that's why part of us is like, oh, I don't want to go to heaven. I want to just, I love the earth, and I want to be here. It's because we were made to live here. And we will live here, but we won't live here with these achy old bodies that are dying and sick. We'll live with him in eternity in these bodies. But in order for that to happen, there has to be this thing called the rapture and the resurrection of the dead, which is Paul's going to talk about. And he says, these, our loved ones will come back with Jesus. Okay, those who have fallen asleep. And then he says this in verse 15. He's adding some context. He says, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. This is straight from God. That we who are alive, okay, so let's assume Jesus comes back today. We're all alive here, I think. Most of us, some of us are are almost not there. But we're alive, we're all here. And those who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who are falling asleep. So Paul's encouraging them to say, listen, your loved ones who have died in faith waiting for Jesus, they're not gone. They're coming back with him. And and you're thinking, oh, they'll get left behind. He's like, actually, no, they're going to be first. And they're coming back with him. And this is going to be this glorious reunion. And, and then he says this. He says that uh, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. He begins to tell us how it will happen. Now, I want to stop here for a second. The Lord will descend from heaven. I was looking at um, Acts chapter 1. So Jesus, he rises from the dead. He spends about 40 days with his disciples, roughly. 
and he's teaching them, and he's preparing them for the days ahead. He's seen by, Paul says, over 500 people saw him resurrected. It's why this tiny sect of faith in this tiny little hole in the wall called Israel 2,000 years ago has become the largest faith in the entire world. And it's because it was witnessed by people who saw the resurrected Jesus, and they were willing to die for it, okay? And so, so he sees them, and then... <laughs> After his time is done, he's now going away to heaven. He's like, I'm leaving. I'm going to come back. And, he, and here's what he says. Check this out. Uh, it says this in uh, Acts 1.9. Just listen to the words. And when he had said these things, encouraging them, as they were looking at Jesus, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him up out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, uh, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. So they're all staring at the sky, and they see Jesus departing into the sky, and all of a sudden it's like, <coughs> couple angels there. Whoa! All right? And they said to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? (laughs) He's gone. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go. The angels say, you just watched him ascend into heaven. Guess what? He's going to come back for his church. And he'd come back in the same way. Paul here talks about it. He says he's going to descend. He's going to descend from heaven. What does it say next? With a cry of command. There's going to be a shout. The groom is coming. The groom. Get ready. And all those who are watching and waiting for his return will prepare to meet him. It's an incredible image, an incredible moment. And then it says this next. It says, um, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. There's going to be this resounding sound of a trumpet. Now remember, the trumpet's used for a lot of different analogies, but the one that, the one that fascinates me the most is this year of Jubilee that I mentioned. Because on that day when Jesus comes back for his church and that trumpet is blown, it signifies that we are free from death, free from sin. And we were created, Adam and Eve were created to live eternally in those bodies, to be in fellowship with God, to walk in perfect purity and holiness. And on that moment when that trumpet blows, guess what happens? Our bodies are restored to live eternally. Our relationship with God, and we meet Him, and we're with Him for eternity. This is beautiful. We're set free from the curse of sin and death and sickness and all of it. At the sound of the trumpet, everything goes back to the way it was supposed to be. Amen. And so that's... That's this beautiful image of the sound of the trumpet of God. And then it says this, the dead in Christ will rise first. Remember the question, what happens to my dead Christian relatives and friends? He says the dead in Christ will rise. They actually, their bodies will come out of the ground. Their spirit's coming with Jesus. Their body will be recreated new, out of the ground, out of the ashes, out of the ocean. I I wonder, why why the dead in Christ rise first? And I thought, they need a six-foot head start. No, that's a... That's a, it's a bad joke, but, but Paul actually, what Paul's actually saying here is that God is going to honor those who have died waiting in faith for him, and they're going to be first, and they're going to come out of the ground, and their spirit and their body is going to be reunited, and they're going to be in the air, and then guess what he says next? He says, then we who are alive, that's, that's those of us who are alive, whenever this event occurs, will be caught up together with them. And you see the words caught up, I've highlighted there. And the reason why I highlighted them, because in the Latin translation of the scriptures, the word used is rapturo. And it means to be caught up or to snatched away. And that's where we get the word rapture. So you've been in church and they're talking about, oh, the rapture is going to happen. 
Jesus is going to take all the Christians and everyone else will be left behind wondering what happened. Rapture. Okay? And we, so that word isn't found in the Bible, but this is where the word comes from. I just wanted you to show you that. Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. So what he says is, those who have died before us are coming with Jesus. Their bodies will be resurrected new. Their body and spirit will meet in the air with Jesus. And those of us who are alive will get new bodies and meet them in the air. And Paul says in one of his letters that all this will happen in the twinkling of an eye. Snap. And, and the groom comes and the bride meets him in the air. And what happens next? We go with him to his house where the relationship is consummated. The church and Christ are together forever and there is a wedding feast called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we read about this in the book of Revelation and we read about it in Jesus' predictions about how we will once again be reunited with him. So this is the imagery that Paul is using as he talks about this. And here's what he says next. He says, we'll meet him in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. Now, this to me, is the most important verse in the whole chapter. And so will I, I thought of titling this sermon, The Rapture. And then I thought, no, with the Lord. Because the most impressive thing about this event isn't going to be what happens to our body. It isn't going to be when it happens or what happens to the world after we leave it or like all of that stuff. We can talk about that. It's lots of fun. The most important thing for those of us who love Jesus is that we get to be with him. When I was getting married to my wife, who was up here at the welcome with me, man, when we got engaged and we were looking forward to that date when we would start our lives together, I was excited and I was willing, I spent all my money on, on a ring and wedding and all this, you know, and brooms and stuff I would never buy. Uh, we bought all this stuff for the house. It didn't make sense, but I, but I was willing to do whatever it took because I loved her and I wanted to be with her forever. And I'm telling you today, like if you come to church and you're like, I want to be a Christian so I don't go to hell. Wrong reason. You become a Christian because you love Jesus. And that's very different. Like you don't, you don't get married, you know, if you're a young lady, you don't marry some guy to get away from your parents. It's a bad plan. There's other ways. We could talk later. <laughs> uh, you don't do that, right? You, you don't marry some guy because you think there's going to be this amazing day where you get to wear a white dress and everybody takes pictures and dotes on you. Because you know what happens after that day? You, you, yeah, you, you live with the guy. Like you, the, the person you chose is way more important than the event. You understand? It's more important than the dress. 30, 40, 50 years later, you're still looking to his cold eyes. <laughs> okay? That's the worst case scenario. But you understand what I'm saying. You don't... You, again, when I, was, when I was a kid, when I was a kid in church, it was like, it was like hey... You better live right, because if you don't, Jesus is going to come, and he's going to take everybody, and you're going to be left behind. And there were times when my parents went for a walk, and I'd come up out of the basement. I'm like, where'd they go? No, I missed it. I missed it. I knew I shouldn't have lied. Right? But this whole thing, like this whole idea of Jesus' coming was based on fear and escaping, right? Escaping from our troubles. Right? Like when we're young, it's like, oh, please, Lord, don't let the rapture happen. I haven't got married yet. I haven't, I haven't had kids yet. You know, there's all these things I haven't experienced. Don't come, don't come. And all the older folks are like, now, Jesus, my bones, my body, I'm sick. I don't want it to take me now. And so everyone's, and so it's, so, so we, don't, we don't become a Christian. We don't follow Jesus because of what it gets us out of. It's because we love him. That's why. And, and the reason why I'm saying that is because this always be with the Lord is, is the key. Like, if you don't love Jesus, heaven is not the place for you. Because you're going to spend eternity with him. <laughs> and that's the best thing. But again, if you love Jesus and you want to be with him, then, then heaven. And, and, 
and this is fascinating. We'll talk more about this next week. We're going to continue next week. But one of the things people don't understand is that, like I said earlier, we're going to live for eternity in bodies. And even though we go away to heaven and he's got all these rooms in his house, guess what happens at the end of Revelation? His house, with all those rooms that we live in, comes down to earth. And we live here with him. So you're like, I don't want to live in the clouds. Don't worry, you're not going to. We're going to live right here. We were created to live here. But we were created to live here with him. With him. And so, there's so much more I could say um, about this. But let's look at the last verse of the chapter. And again, we'll pick it up next week. Uh, He says this. He says, therefore, and this is so fascinating to me, encourage one another with these words. This coming day when Jesus returns is not a day of fear. It's a day of anticipation and hope for those that love him. You know, it's not something that we're afraid of. It's something that we ought to be looking forward to. And uh, one of the best things about it is obviously being with him, but then seeing our loved ones and being reunited with those of faith and our new bodies and our eternity with him. It's amazing. And Paul's like, hey, you guys are all worried about this stuff. This should be an encouragement. Anytime I hear someone talking about the end times and it's all fear, like, oh no, there's an antichrist. Who is it? It's Mussolini. It's Stalin. It's Hitler. Now it's Donald Trump. You know, people... (laughs) People, people always like anybody that has great power and could, and it's like, that's the anti, like, we're not supposed to be looking for the antichrist. We're supposed to be looking for Christ. That's what we look for. That's what we anticipate. So whenever people talk about the end times and it's all fear, 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 Paul's like, no, encourage one another with these words. Jesus is coming for his church. Next week, we're going to talk about how we live in light of his return. And we'll talk about some of the details when he's coming. I'll give you my prediction. And, uh, and no, I won't, but we'll talk about. We'll talk about, we'll talk about his return in, in some more detail, but um, we're going to think about how do we live in light of it. And I'll tell you this, the more, the more we come to know who Jesus is and the more we love him, it changes the way we treat one another. Jesus talks at length. Every time he talks about his second coming, he's like, treat other people well because when I come, I'm going to judge you. So we love others and we give and we sacrifice because he's coming. And we love him. And that's what he does. And so it changes everything. And so I'll say this in, in closing, and then we're going to share in communion. A great perspective to have in light of his second coming, in light of the rapture, in light of the end of days is this. Whatever time I have left, whether he comes or I go, let me use my life to serve you faithfully until that day. That, that's our goal. And uh, so I'm, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to walk through communion. I'm going to ask the band to come up. Uh, Father, um, today as we look at these scriptures, we're talking about things that are sometimes hard to understand and comprehend. But Lord, you use the analogy of marriage because it's one that we understand culturally and we see in our lives. Help us, Father, to understand that you love us, that you paid the ultimate price, and that one day you're coming so that we can be with you forever. Help us to live our lives in faith. Help us to live our lives in love in light of that day. We pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Pathway Church Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, go to our website, pathwaylife.com. And as always, don't forget to subscribe. See you next week.